0: Good morning, each one. It's good to have you here and to be with you. Appreciate the uh, service so far and just trust that it'll continue to, to be a blessing And as we uh, study, further study, study God's Word. A, uh, a subject that has been on my heart and in my mind for quite some time. Uh, revolves around a statement that Jesus made in Matthew 16 when he gathered together his little motley crew. Sorry. Yes. We'll try that. Thank you. When uh, Jesus... ...of uh, 12 ragtag men, and, um, and he took them to a place for what I, would f- what I refer to as, as their graduation ceremony at the base of Mount Hermon at a place called Caesarea Philippi and uh, this was the place that has traditionally been known as a place of pagan worship. Uh, they tell me that today you can still see niches carved in the face of the rock where they would place statues and worship their Baal gods, the god Pan in particular. And Imagine with me why Jesus would have taken at the close of his ministry here on his earth, why he would bring these rough men that he had come to love to a place of pagan worship to disclose what was really, really burning on his heart. I mean, he could have found, or could he not have found, a more appropriate place to share the secrets of his heart. But he didn't. And uh, he brought him to a place that I think depicts the intense battle that was birthed nearly 4,000 years prior to that at a place called the Garden of Eden when God (coughs) proclaimed to Adam and Eve that from this point forward there is going to be enmity between good and evil. And uh, right and wrong would be in a constant battle with each other. Mor- morality and immorality would face off repeatedly. And so if you really stop and think about it, what better place could Jesus have brought these men uh, to tell him what he really wanted to tell them and have this kind of graduation of this sort? He was leaving them, and he desperately wanted them to know and wanted them to get who he really was. And so he, after he was there for a little while, he poses this simple question to them. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter, yes, we are on. Sorry about that. I thought I saw a green light. And by the way, I've taught you previously that this question still requires an answer from us today. Who do you say? Who do I say that he is? And Peter, whether inspired by the knowledge of God or bumbling a confession that he didn't even understand himself, made this awesome declaration that still rings true in the heart of every believer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus made an immediate response. I believe it resonated with his his heart. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, now think of where they were. They were at the base of Mount Hermon. There's actually a, a cliff. There's a flat face of the rock. And so they're standing there at the, at the, at the place of pagan worship and pagan uh, gods and statues And possibly even as they were standing there, people bowing down at this rock. Now, was Jesus referring to that rock? No, I think Jesus was referring to the confession, the foundation that that Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon that confession, upon that rock, upon that foundation, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I confess to you this morning that I desire to understand the full implication, the full impact of Jesus' response. And by saying that, by that confession, I'm telling you that I yearn. To have a deeper comprehension and experience the fullness, the full dynamic of what is so close to the heart of Jesus Christ and that is his church. In Jesus' response to his disciples, we catch a glimpse of our existence, why we're here to begin with. We also really see the, we we catch a glimpse also of uh, of uh, it just sort of encapsulates the epitome of God in what really is in His heart, and that intrigues me. And uh, and, and, and and from the quest of that intrigue, I've I've felt led to develop a series of messages. That center around the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus made that powerful statement, I will build my church, in essence, what he was saying was, I will build my assembly of called out ones. The original word is ecclesia. And uh, hence the title, New Testament Ecclesiology. That's not a fancy schmancy word that we can't wrap our minds around. It simply means that we're going to be doing a study on the New Testament church. And uh, this series will just uh, just be looking at various aspects of the church and what was so close to the heart of God. Think with me what it might be like if we were to fully grasp Jesus' own words in verse 19 when he he was talking about his ecclesia. He said, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I don't know if you've given that verse any significant thought. I've I've meditated upon it. I've thought about it. I've read it. I've reread it, and I'm intrigued. I'm certain that most of us here this morning can relate to some level of disillusionment and disappointment Yes, and perhaps even hurt when it comes to our experience of ecclesia. I'm sure for the most part, many of us, if not all of us, well, perhaps not some younger children, as adults, perhaps to some degree we can relate to the despicable and the pitiful way that man has twisted God's intention for his church. And I wish for your sake that I were able to remove that blemish from your memory and just sort of wipe it out of your life and that you could have an untainted view and experience God's idea of a church. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But wait a minute. If I do that for you, is it then not James building the ecclesia? It would be my version of what I idealize as a church, when in essence Jesus said, I will build my church. So can I at least encourage you with this thought? If God is doing what he said he would do, I will build my church, then could it be possible that your past, my past experience, church experience, up until this point has come about and has been uniquely given to you by Jesus as a way of building his church. Think about that. In other words, Jesus knew just the right experience you needed. He knew just the right experience I needed to make me into the bride he desires, which in essence then is building his ecclesia. You see, as long as we resent and as long as we have contempt for our past church experience. We will not reach our full spousal potential as his bride. I I just don't believe we will. That is not to excuse those who have executed uh, ecclesiastical principles uh, that were contrary to God's principles. That's not to excuse that. Unfortunately, some of our greatest hurts have come from within the body of believers. And that's a tragedy. But you know what's even a greater tragedy? Is to get locked into the bitterness and the resentment of what we've experienced. That's by far greater a greater tragedy that we can that we can uh, find ourselves. <coughs> because My personal experience is what God deemed best for me. Contempt for my past experience will cause me to live in reaction for most of my life and then see everything, including church life, out of those lenses. Hence, we will seldom, if ever, experience the fruition of verse 19 which then actually creates an even greater disillusionment and we run around saying why can't we see church being played out like it was played out in the New Testament why are we not seeing this come to pass hey listen I speak from my own experience probably unknown to many of you when I was about 10 or 11 years old this congregation went through a heart-wrenching split it was back in the, mid, the early to mid-70s that <coughs> dwindled us down to just a few families. I hated the fact, at 10, 11 years old, that most of my friends that I had grown up with left this congregation and started attending elsewhere. I felt even at that young age that the eyes of the community were upon us. For some reason, I felt like we were sort of the scum of the community, and I hated that. I resented it. I I didn't like the fact that we had a small youth group, and even as I grew older, it got even smaller yet. It didn't help the fact that when I was about 15, 16, 17, I don't know how old, somewhere in my upper teens, Mid-teens, a man told me one day, he said, James, the problem with your church is that you're just taking any old dog as a member. That hurt. And in the midst of some of my deepest frustrations, I used to ask Dad, Dad, why did you ever hang around? Why didn't you just pack up and leave somewhere or go somewhere else or do something different?" Let me just tell you, that going through an experience like that from about age to 10 to 15 shapes what you think about God's ecclesia. As I look back now, I marvel at the incredible mercy of God and his powerful grace that kept me from growing bitter and disillusioned and just walking away from it all. I don't know what kept me other than God's grace. Because he used that experience in my life to give me an even greater love for his church, his bride. Today I can honestly stand up here in front of you and tell you That I've thanked God many times for letting me go through that situation, experiencing that. I can also say that I am indebted to God for allowing me to experience that. Oh, would I want to go through it again? (laughs) No, no, no. In fact, every time that my character has been shaped in a very dynamic way, I normally wouldn't want to go through that experience again. But I can truly say that my character were shaped through that experience I really believe I'm a better person because of it I think I'm a better pastor because of it I, I've, I've hopefully I've learned some of the things that perhaps we can avoid in the future and, and really live out what it means to what God's heart is for, for his ecclesia and by the way I'm not endorsing what transpired back then with God's people. I'm not excusing that. That needs to be dealt with. Whatever happened, the fact is it happened, and I needed to make a response. So, hopefully, as we launch into this series of New Testament ecclesia, you will find the courage to apply what we learned to your own life and your own experience. This this series has really been a long time in coming. In fact, many years in coming in the making. I've I've read scripture. I've reread scripture. I've read books. I've clipped articles. I have gathered data. I've had countless conversations with other believers, including many of you here, on what, on this whole concept, this whole idea of God's ecclesia, his church. What, what? What is his church supposed to look like? How are we supposed to function? Are we we shaped by culture or by scripture? Um, What is its responsibility? Why do we do the things that we do? And uh, and so on. And 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 a lingering question that keeps niggling at my mind and has for many years is, Whether we, his bride, are tapping in on our full resource. I I don't want to overcomplicate church. That's the last thing I want to do. But I also don't want to simplify it to the the place where I I really missed what God intended uh, in his church. And so God give us wisdom. So in this series, I want to look, I want to start off, I'm going to to be taking a look at the seven churches that we find in the book of Revelation, mention the book of Revelation. I will use these seven churches as a launching pad to illustrate uh, assemblies that exist currently and also historically. Um, Each of these locations have a story uh, they are real people, with real names that lived in real places. And um, and as we study these various churches, I think you'll be amazed. I, I was uh, just intrigued with how many similarities that I find in those churches and the stuff that we that we face today. And so I think there's. I think that's one of the reasons I, that that Jesus gave this revelation to John and and why it's recorded is because I think it depicts various assemblies that are even in existence today and have in the past. Um, They too struggled with the influence and and could I add the affluence of, of mainstream culture and uh and, and and of course that pressure then caused some of them to crumble and cave in while others stood like tested and tried champions of the cross and those people are an inspiration to us and then after we look at those seven churches i'd like to then look at the eighth church <laughs> the new testament church and and i don't i'm I'm just saying okay what does as we flesh that out what what does that what is god's real intention for his ecclesia what's he trying to accomplish what's its function why do we do the things that we do and so on those those questions and uh, and then just sort of flesh it out in a practical way and so that's sort of the direction uh that i'd like to go with this series on new testament ecclesia today the title that we have for today is Ephesus. Yesterday, Ephesus today, and by the way, we're not going to get near through that church today. So we'll just give you uh, a. We'll just start with uh, the the beginning introduction to Ephesus. Like to read the verses from Revelation chapter two, one through seven. If you have your Bibles, you can follow, or you can follow on the PowerPoint. This is how it reads: To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things he says who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands i know your works your labor your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars glenn could i have a a glass of water please thanks and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Interesting comment. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Before we actually get into the meat of these verses, which we'll probably do in the next message, I felt it necessary to give you a bit of a backdrop to Ephesus. I think when we understand the history of Ephesus, it has more of an impact with what is said here, particularly in the church there. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate it. Ephesus, along with the other six churches, was located up there in modern-day Turkey, it's over in the area where if you would take a, I was going to check about this. This does not, does it have the, the top one? If you would take the uh, the seven churches, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, per, per, uh, per, Pergamon, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, if you would take a center from them it would be about a 50 mile radius so the furthest that any of these were apart was about a hundred miles from each other in the roman empire was at rule at this time and they would call ephesus the crown jewel of asia minor it was a flourishing town it was a very affluent town and we'll see why um, one of the one of the it was one of the foremost cities in the in the empire of Rome at that time, and um, we we see that it was located on the western edge of the Argean Sea, about three miles from the coast. And uh, today, much of the of the ruins there's still a lot of ruins from this original city. The, the city that sort of took its place is now further inland, but a lot of the ruins are now covered in, in the silt from the sea and is under uh, under uh, a lot of uh, uh, silt and dirt, uh, but is being unearthed and excavated, and they're finding more and more of the ruins from the past there. Under the Roman rule, this city thrived, reaching its highest pinnacle of... of of prosperity during their reign. Paul, on his second missionary journey, if you recall, he started out at Jerusalem. He went up through Antioch, and, and as he was up there in, in Derby and Lystria and those areas, he had that vision, and he was called over to Macedonia, and he went over there, and on his way back, he stops at Ephesus. And he stayed there for about three years, close to three years, as close as we can tell. And those were the years about 49 to 52 A.D. So now we're not a long way out from from Christ being on the earth. It's not a long time. And, And we find that account. That trip there, we find the account when he was at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at that a little bit today. He also visited on his third missionary journey, and again it was sort of at the tail end of his of his uh, return, going back to Jerusalem. Then he was going to go back up to Antioch. Uh, We see him stopping by Ephesus again. Now by this time, Christianity had gained a foothold in this region. Uh, Men like uh, uh, Timothy and, and, and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla and, uh, of course, Paul, and then later on, John. And so, Christian had gained a foothold uh, by this time. However, many of the people, many of the Christians, and even some of the leaders, even John himself, paid with their life. It was an expensive missionary venture. (laughs) They paid with the ultimate, their own lives. I think I have a bad battery. Uh, No? Sorry about that. Uh, What am I doing? Testing? Is it there? Okay, sorry about that. However, with that sort of behind us, what made Ephesus such a flourishing city? What made it the crown jewel of the Roman Empire? And the answer is simple. The heart and the strength of the city was firmly established in the pagan worship of the fertility god Artemis or I think is sometimes referred to, and it does refer to it in Acts 19 as Diana. I'm going to refer to it mostly as Artemis today. That's the way it's mostly in in historical writings uh, referred to. Artemis of the Ephesians, it was a fertility goddess. Um, We can scarcely wrap our minds around the atrocious immorality and the destructive force that this kind of base worship can bring to a community Uh, we just don't have it in our place now uh, for some of you who have heard Nate and Autumn's experience several weeks ago uh, when they were in Chicago you know the fact is Maybe some of that stuff is, is just going to become more and more predominant around us. But for many, many years we've been very, very sheltered. And that's not a bad thing. But uh, what I wanna, what I, the impact I wanna leave with you today is these people, I mean, there were public hot tubs and cooling baths and mosh- massage parlors. There was nudity and perversion beyond what we can imagine. And, and, and the whole idea that the reproduction was, was Artemis' gift to mankind. Even if we look just at the statute itself, <coughs> it, it, it speaks of fertility and, and uh, reproduction if you look from the waist down to the uh, bottom of the skirt, there's layers of animal heads, and it's it, that's a way of talking about the reproduction of animals. You see around the necklace, <clears throat> a necklace of, of acorns. Uh, the, on on the sides of the skirt are the are are bee drones, bee drones, because it was thought that that Artemis was the the bee queen who would reproduce. And the drones were the, the the priests, eunuchs actually, that would work for the priest for the for the bee drone, or the the bee queen, <clears throat> and so there was uh, there was just there, the 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 worship of that day was so blatantly anti God. Uh, we can we ju- you know we just can't imagine. Uh, I've read in past. Uh, 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 articles that I've read and, and, and history that I've read is that where, where, where priests and prostitutes would uh, would engage in front of the people in, in, uh, in fornication. And it was just a debaucherous setting in a culture, a whole culture. And this was the seat. Ephesus was the seat of the goddess Diana or, or Artemis. In 600 BC, 600 years before this time, before Christ, uh, they had built an, a, an altar to uh, a temple to Artemis. But that one was destroyed. And then, during the Grecian rule, which was just before the Romans, uh, they built another temple. Now, this is a computer rendering of what they think it may have looked like, or something similar to this. the second rebuilding was created with such magnificence and splendor uh, that it became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, this building was huge. Uh, 450 feet long, 220 feet wide, 120, some say 127 columns that were 60 feet tall. And like most of the Grecian temples of that day, it was open to the sky inside. This became one of the the, the seven wonders of the world. It was an absolute stunning architectural display. But it was also the seat of a worldwide religion, the world at that time. This man says, I have seen the walls of unbreachable, un, unbreachable Babylon, along which chariots may race, and the statutes of Zeus by the river of Alphaeus, the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun, the great man-made mountains of the lofty pyramids and the gigantic tomb of Mensolus. But when I saw the sacred house of Artemis reaching the clouds, the others paled. This is what was at Ephesus. The town became the protector and the defender of Artemis' worship. The eunuchs, the priests, who were called curates, the curates and her temple became responsible for the purity of that worship worldwide. The momentum of the strength that it gained was, uh, was gaining power. And, and with that power came unbelievable wealth. And what happened was they began to encourage the people to deposit their money into this temple because Artemis, after all, would protect their money. And so they would come from far and wide to deposit their money. And then they discovered that they could actually use those funds and and charge a fairly significant interest and, and loan it out to people. And so now they had it coming and going. And so people would come from all around to give money and to borrow money. And it made their town extremely wealthy. Extremely wealthy. No wonder it was the crown rule of uh, of, of that day. Thousands of people came from all around to borrow and deposit money but also to acknowledge the fertility blessing of Artemis. That was the culture of their day. And then here comes Paul, waltzing along, and uh, educated, knowledgeable in the Torah, or the scripture of that day, and intensely passionate for Jesus Christ. And he walks right into the center of Artemis worship. You know, some people just have a knack of finding trouble. And Paul met his match. He immediately goes to the synagogue, which really makes a lot of logical sense because those were the people he was comfortable with. He may have even known some of them from other places. And he was well-versed in the Torah. And from the scriptures, he began to, to tell them, he began to show them from the writings how they were supposed to live. And for three months, it says that he taught them, and they listened, and he taught them what was morally wrong and what was morally right and what uh, what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And and I'm sure in that whole teaching, he taught them about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, or Yeshua. However, there were those who hardened their hearts and, and would not listen to Paul, so he moved on. And he just went to the next place, down the street, to a hall, a lecture hall of Tyrannus. And for the next two years, he would teach at this school of learning. Daily, it says, he would teach at this school of learning. And he spoke freely, and he spoke passionately about the truth. And they listened. In fact, it says, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. He was completely unapologetic about the word that he taught and that it was truth. He was comfortable putting out that word into this uh, public arena. However, truth always has implications. And after two and a half years, he ran into a big problem, a huge problem. Because the the, the folks of the town began to realize, hey, listen, if Paul's teaching, if his truth is really the truth, then it is undermining our truth or what we perceive to be true. And that creates a problem. If God, if this God that he's teaching, and Yeshua is his Messiah, then who is Artemis? I'm sure they were asking that question. And one of the things I appreciate about Paul is that we don't find him bashing over other religions. You know what he did? He just spoke the truth. That was enough. And I can just sort of imagine Paul scratching his head when they asked him, who's Artemis? And he says, well, he's just a figment of your imagination. He really isn't. Or she isn't. And then there was a certain Demetrius, who was a silversmith, and realized what Paul was saying threatened their whole belief system in Artemis, which in in essence then threatened their whole economy. In other words, the implication of Paul's truth undermined their whole lifestyle. And so he gathers a bunch of his craftsmen together. Demetrius does. And this is what he told them. Men... You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods, which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. And with that speech, those guys that had gathered around him began to chat. Great is the great is Diana of Ephesus of Ephesians. Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians, which then in turn triggered a mob spirit. The Bible says that in a state of great confusion, the crowd begins to rush down to their amphitheater, which by the way, is a wonder in itself. This was a place that would, that would hold up to 24 to 25,000 people. And they would have all kinds of events going on there. and they rushed down to that amphitheater down there and for two hours straight, they were chanting, "Greatest Diana!" Of the Ephesians, great is Artemis. We love Artemis. Artemis loves us. He gives us reproduction, and it says that. Some were saying some one thing, others were saying another thing, and there was just bedlam in that whole uh, community, uh, in, in that theater. In fact, it, the Bible says that some people didn't even know why they were there, or what was going on. They were confused at why, why they were even there. But they were yelling and carrying on, and this mob spirit just went wild. But that's what happens when a mob spirit takes control. And finally, the the town mayor gets up, and he he finally is able to settle these people down. And once he has quieted them enough to begin talking, by the way, this amphitheater uh, has its own acoustical uh, sound. They they tell me that the way it was designed, they didn't need any loudspeakers. They were able to hear all the way around. Three-tiered stadium. And he gets up and he begins talking to the people, and he reminds them that their actions could call them into question by the Romans, who could take away their town and also their freedom. And he sort of chides them, and he says, if you have an issue take it to the proconsul. If you have an issue with these men, take it to the proconsul. That's why we have a court system, in essence, is what he was saying. And eventually the crowd is dismissed and Paul leaves with his life, but barely. Now Paul's example, I think, begs a question from all of us. When have I spoken so clearly, so lovingly, and without fear that the implications of the truth of what I've said were an offense to all those who heard it. I honor Paul today and those who were with him, those men of faith, the men and the commitment that they they displayed who dared to go into that cesspool of their culture and stand for truth. I honor those men today. I want to be that kind of person myself. I want to be bold for the truth and not be afraid of my life or my reputation. I desire that kind of courage courage, to be that courageous person. That was the emphasis of yesterday. Yesterday. That was their history. That was the place where this, this church birthed out of. And God is just as real to the pagan person as he is to the child who is born to Christian parents.